Coming to us from Houston is my brother, Ken. Say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. There we go. Yeah. Uh, greetings. We are the Brothers Trek About, and this week we are trekking all over the devil in the dark. Oh, boy. It sounds scary, but it's not really at all scary. In fact, it's a nice alien, but we'll get there quickly enough, I promise you. Perfect. Excellent. Well, this episode all came about because of a Hungarian immigrant who uh, went to Hollywood. He was a stuntman for a while and uh, made a career dressed as apes. His name was uh, Janos, which is funny because that's also the name of the, the new guy who's playing Chewbacca. So that's funny, except I think the new Janos has two O's or something. It's a, it's a different spelling. But anyway, uh, so this guy went to the producers of Star Trek and said, hey, if I can come up with a really cool monster, will you guys use it and pay me to be the monster? <laughs> and uh, they were basically like, yeah, sure, go ahead, go ahead, that's cool. Janos comes into the office uh, a couple days later, asks uh, Gene Roddenberry, Gene Kuhn, Robert Justman, and DC Fontana all to like come outside the building. You know, like, that's not a little bit scary, let's be honest, right? Hey, no, no, really, it's out in the street. Uh, it's outside the studio, but uh, don't worry, it's going to be cool. It takes all of them out. Mecca. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> They're like, we can't even get that in the studio. So uh, they go down, they go down onto the street, and uh, suddenly this blob comes, like, skittering up from around the corner and heads straight for us, and then it stops, and then it back away, backs away. And then it kind of rotates in, in space. And then it backs away and it drops a baby. One of the little like circle dealies that, uh, you know, is the uh, silicone uh, babies or eggs from this episode. Robert Justin was kind of dumbfounded by it all. He was like, that's pretty awesome. And Kuhn loved the fact that he could like have babies on <laughs> screen. He thought that that was a pretty cool thing. You know, Kuhn was like, I think I can write something about this. And so that afternoon, he goes in, writes up a treatment, sends it off to Robert Justman. Justman makes a couple of, like, minor tweaks to it that he thought needed to be done. And he says, hey, if you could write this up as fast as you can, that would be great. Because in the background, they still have Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of for, for, uh, Forever. Still not a workable script. Uh, Barry Trivers' script called The Portrait of Black and White. Paul Schneider's Tomorrow is Tomorrow the Universe. Theodore Sturgeon's uh, work uh, on a muck time. None of these things are ready to go. None of them have even hit the uh, you know the the rewrite process of either Coon or Roddenberry. So they're kind of like, yeah, we really need another script now. And if you remember in the last episode, I was talking about how uh, you know Justin was pretty much like, we got nothing. So the sooner we can get anything, the better. All right, fixed, good, okay. 
Kuhn uh, writes, up his, writes up his first draft that afternoon, decides to sit on it for a day before he sends it off to NBC, looks at Justman's notes, makes a couple of the smaller tweaks, but one of the big tweaks that he didn't make was that he, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar, wanted the show to start with the Enterprise getting hit in a meteor shower and then being uh, hurt so much that it had to sort of limp its way over to the, uh, to the next system. That sounds familiar. It's because the last three teleplays that Kuhn has come up with, he's tried to start every episode with that. <laughs> and it did not work then either. It's just too expensive. How are you going to do meteoroids in, uh, you know, on a 60s budget? Kuhn writes the first and second drafts of the tele- teleplays in, se- in December, uh, within days of one another. You might ask, hey, how is Gene Kuhn writing so fast? Well, Kuhn's secretary, uh, Andy Richardson, said, uh, well, he liked amphetamines. <laughs> it really contributed to grinding his teeth and being all grim looking. He was under a lot of pressure at the time, but that was how he was able to write The Devil in the Dark so fast. He finished it in four days, both drafts. It was done so fast and good enough that not only did NBC like it, but that uh, Justman was happy with it that it bypassed, it's the only script ever to bypass a Roddenberry rewrite or a DC Fontana rewrite and go rewrite and go right to script. Not much on the actors in this episode. None of them went out to do much of anything else, but uh, all, of the, uh, all of the main actors in this episode were, you know, big guest stars during the 60s, all on the shows and all the stuff that you would have seen. Also, a lot of the, uh, the crew members that were in this episode on Kirk's squad were also... Uh, stand-ins like uh, eddie paskey for instance who we have talked about who is yep. kirk stand-in is also uh, is in this episode as well but i will say this brad weston who is cast as a pal was the only minor to see the creature and live you remember him from the episode he was cast in this episode and then roddenberry after seeing it was like uh, you know i kind of like that guy uh, i'm looking for another younger male actor to fill in the regular cast in hopes of you know getting more teens to watch the show. You know, why don't you tell me a little bit about him? What, uh, what do you know about him? What's his background? What's his ability? Blah, blah, blah. Of course, that character would go on to be cast as Walter Koenig and uh, as Pavel Chekhov. So didn't work out for poor uh, Appel in this one. But there you go. A couple of uh, other minor trivia notes to go on before we get started in this episode. Uh, this marks the uh, first and only time that an episode of Star Trek, the original series, begins without the Enterprise or its crew being involved in the teaser scenes before the main credits. Interesting. In addition, is the, it is also the only episode of the original series that has no female speaking parts. I read that and I thought back and I was like, wow, yeah, I guess. It's all minors. Women. Yeah, it's all the minors. None of their wives. Um, <laughs> They don't need wives. <laughs> That's right, exactly. That's a different mining problem. <laughs> That's what mud's there for. That's right. Uh, also, uh, principal photography of this episode started uh, Monday, January 16th, 1967. This is uh, important to know only because it was the day after the very first Super Bowl was played. thought that was kind of cool. So uh, everything was going wrong smoothing, smoothing, swimmingly, swimmingly well in this episode uh, when it came to the production of it. Uh, filming continued at a brisk pace. Boom, they're moving along with it when suddenly 
during the morning hours, everything was interrupted by the sad news that William Shatner's father had died in Florida on this day, day three, January 18th. Leonard Nimoy recalls, uh, the producers told him, like, go ahead and leave, you know. They were making meeting arrangements for him to get on a plane, but Bill just shook his head and gritted his teeth and said, uh, nope, we're in the middle of the scene. I'm going to finish it before I walk off the set. Uh, Nimoy goes on to say, D. Kelly and I both said, no, it's okay, just leave, Bill, just go ahead. But he was determined to finish the scene. And though the tension on the set was almost unbearable, as we were all helplessly watching him struggle to get it done, it was a tough emotional afternoon. But there was nothing for him to do except remain close by. Shatner even goes on to say that, like, he was really thankful that uh, uh, Nimoy was close. Uh, you know, he's like stayed physically close to him almost the whole day just to sort of like help him get through. Eddie Paskey himself said uh, he didn't even know what had happened. Like, he's, you know, Kirk's up there giving his speech about going back and forth, telling him, like, hey, we got to catch this thing. We got to make sure we shoot it and kill it, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until after the scene was done that did any of the other people on the set find out. So there you go. On day four, uh, Shatner was gone. He had uh, left the night before on a plane. So he shot all the remaining scenes that didn't involve Kirk. And then the cast and crew were excused. So now the production was suddenly a day behind. Day five, nobody was on set because, uh, you know, there's nothing else they could shoot. Except the Horton. Uh, he had a lot more tunnels to make. <laughs> yes, exactly. The insurance paid for that one, which I thought was really interesting. Day six, Shatner returns. Peabney said uh, he managed really great. You know, uh, obviously he still had some problems with a couple of lines, but uh, for the most part, he was better than I would have been. Uh, Peabney went on to say that when my wife died, I was a complete mess and couldn't do anything. Day eight, the morning hours were spent finishing Vandenberg's office and then moved to stage nine for a pair of brief scenes on the ship's bridge at the end. That is that. And then they finished two days late, basically. But we'll get all into all the numbers like we always do at the end of this episode once we've talked about it. So, as always, let's get to it. Captain's log. Stardate. It's five-year mission. Stardate. 3196.1. Our first shot here is a it's a mine or an underground factory. It's sort of hard to tell. Looks fantastic. Uh, it's like a city. Yeah. Well, this is, you know, again, uh, I did a what if you look online, you can always see the comparison videos of what the the episode originally looked like and what it looked like, you know, after they did the CG and stuff. And it was really interesting because in this one. The hand-drawn mat just doesn't quite work if you look at it. It looks, it looks obviously hand-drawn. Is basically what it is compared to the other one, which actually looks, you know, like you said, uh, looks pretty great. So we're in the mine. We see a guy with a phaser walking through. By the way, this was also added. That little like pan into the little guy was also added in the new, the new CGI updates. He meets up with some other workers. They're all looking kind of scared. We find out some people have died here. We don't quite know what's going on. So uh, then this like one main guy is talking. He's like Joe from Jersey or something. You know, he's like total blue collar, which is nice. It's kind of, you know, setting up the viewers of the 60s, you know, letting you know who these minor guys are, right? They're total like little blue collar guys. 
and uh, you know, we hear that like 50 guys have died, but uh, we need to keep somebody on security. And this guy is the guy who's left to it by himself. No other guys to help him out or to back him up. No, just one guy being left alone in the, uh, in the cave by himself with a hand phaser. Hope it's enough. And then the show spends like a lot of time, like a good 15, 20 seconds watching this guy just like circle the room, you know? Nowadays, he'd be like, why are we wasting precious seconds on watching this guy, you know? But it's the 60s. We can do whatever we want. And you know what's even funnier is just that it, it fits, too, because you know for this guy who's scared out of his mind, this is like 15 seconds has already felt like five minutes have passed. You know what I mean? It's the longest 15 seconds of his life waiting for this whatever, hoping he doesn't see anything but scared to death. But luckily, he doesn't have to wait too long because then he sees it. He's too scared to fire, and it attacks. The men were just down the hallway. They come running back in, and all they see is him burnt to a crisp. Dun, dun, dun. To the credits. Back at it. Uh, oh, before we get back at it, this is a question I had. So we heard them talk about the Enterprise coming, right? The guy, the scared guy is like, uh, I heard the Enterprise is coming. Is it true? So the question I have is just, is the Enterprise that famous that everybody's like, oh boy, the Enterprise is coming? Or is the it just like famous? All you had to tell me is that the wolf is coming. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or are we just, uh, you know, are they just excited that any ship is coming and they just happen to hear the name? Which one do you think that is? Uh, probably a combination of both. Because on the one hand, you know, you got a ship coming. You're going to say, hey, you know, I hear they're sending in a ship, whatever, and you, you may say its name. On the other hand, we as the audience are going to be invested in one particular ship, the Enterprise. So to get that sense, you know, from the audience that our ship is on the way, our team, our crew, not just like, I hear they're sending someone. Yeah, some guys. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, right. Up. Exactly. <laughs> I hope they're helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I hope they're bringing lots of guns. Yeah. Oh, wrong ship. No, no. <laughs> We're an engineering ship. We're just going to build things and take things apart. Exactly. So uh, we hear the captain's log, but we are, we are not on the Enterprise. We see uh, Spock, Bones, and McCoy beam down. They are immediately, very quickly greeted and without a word shown to Vandenberg. We're here about the monster and the damage that it's caused. We also hear uh, that the uh, this rock that they're mining, I couldn't quite catch the name. It's like a primo. Pertilium. Prom, pertilium, sure. Uh, <laughs> but it's good. It can be, it's, a, it's a very valuable rock because it can be replaced for so many things. And there's a list, but I didn't catch them all. And so then this guy, he, he pulls out this map, right? That's... Uh, you know, that has a map of the whole, I don't know, all 23 levels. I don't know what this is supposed to be a map of. It's a map. But he pulls it out like it's on a big, like, chalkboard, you know? It's not a computer screen. It's not a data pad showing yeah. us where all this is. No, it's a big it's a big board. I guess it was easier for the miners. Fortunately, we got a printer down here. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I guess when you're corporate, they can't spring for things like, uh, you know, 
like computer screens and tablets and such. I don't know. But they, but they can set up a printer. We're going we're to send you a printer and two printers apprentices to set up a, a press on level 12. Yes. So that you can do all these maps and stuff yourself, you know. That's uh, right. That's right. I need exactly. to send that out. <laughs> <laughs> or have a computer which could like double for like every other possible use. Yes, exactly. Even for this one, which is great. So uh, this is when Edipel. It's funny oh, because it, it shows the limitations of the way people think about stuff. Because you could have put the exact same map behind some glass with a you know, it looks like it's got a panel. And we would have bought it as a computer display, mm -hmm. right? I mean, today we look at it and go, I don't know, cheesy computer or whatever. But you go, it's a computer. Okay. Yeah. And then I think the audience would have just gone, oh, look, that's a computer. But instead exactly. we get this paper map that, that just shows that, like, they weren't thinking, oh, computers are used for everything. You order pizza on a computer. Edipel comes in. I think oh, in Star ahead. Trek, if you were going to order computer, you'd like go to a panel and turn some knobs, right? Settings, right. pepperoni. I'm going to dial some extra <laughs> cheese here. What size do you want? Click, click, click. I'm going to get a large. You know? <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> uh, all right. Edipel comes in, says that he's actually seen the creature, but he can't really describe it. He doesn't seem to like Starfleet too much either. He says, uh, oh, you think you're so strong with your phaser banks? You can't get your ship down here. Okay, whatever, man. I got phasers. It's cool. So uh, Spock asks about this ball that's on the table. We find out it's this silicone nodule. There are millions of them down there, says Vandenberg. But I didn't bring you here to collect rocks, he says. Okay, whatever. Uh, McCoy returns from his rather quick autopsy. Oh, everyone else leaves, by the way. That's important to know. Uh, because McCoy returns with his rather quick autopsy. He says uh, that he was not burned to death, but it looks more like a big chemical burn, some side of corrosive acid. Kirk says, strong enough to burn through some metal? Or anything else you can think of, scoffs McCoy. Spock looks at the map and says that if all these times are be to be believed, the creature would have to move at quite an accelerated rate to make it through that uh, all those hallways. And while they scanned for life, there is nothing but only residents of the colony there. At least, he says, life as we know it. <laughs> Spock, uh, that's two, by the way. We've had two now from the uh, song that have made it into the actual show. It's life, Spock but not as we know it. Not as we know it, Captain. <laughs> Spock decides to make uh, the creature appear, you know, by, uh, he's like, there's got to be a way to get it out here, out in the open. If only they could have an idea of what it is. Then, all of a sudden, another death is seen. Oh, no! Uh, the creature moves away, and a corrosive trail is left behind him, steaming. Uh, meanwhile, Vandenberg comes back and uh, gives some important piece of information at just the right moment. And then, they hear the scream. The red alert hits. And for some reason, he has this button on the door. This is the second time I noticed this. He has a button on his desk that'll open the door. I don't know why seems unnecessary but anyway they have that button and so they rush down to the reactor and inside they find that a cooling pump has been compromised and that uh, without it the whole reactor is going to go boom 
funny piece of trivia right here that this prop used to depict the damaged reactor for the colony was previously used when the damaged Enterprise transporter circuit during the Enemy Within. So we've seen that before. It's a very versatile piece of equipment. Right, yes, exactly. <laughs> and so, by the way, just in case anyone at home doesn't know what a reactor does, Vandenberg goes on to tell us, you know, how important the reactor is by giving us a list of like eight things that this reactor does, you know, and it's all things that you would expect a reactor to do, like, you know, give heat and electricity and, and, and the air that's down there and, uh, you know, hot showers and laundry and it keeps the beer cold and all these things that it apparently does. So good for Vandenberg to give us that list, otherwise we'd be so lost. Are you being eaten by a creature over there? No, just getting my piece of technology here, which I will be using to cool off my reactor. <laughs> yes, exactly. It says tech on it, so it must be a real piece. <laughs> That's my technology. <laughs> yes, clearly. It can also uh, solve uh, Heisenberg compensator problems. And uh, I can use it to recharge the shields. Well, I, if now, you were Scotty, I would believe that you could actually do that, but... It's because it's technology right here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is kind of what they're doing. They're just like, let's just, you know, make up something that looks cool and futuristic, and we'll, it's phlebotinum, right? Yeah, exactly. That's whatever we needed to do. So even Stranger here, Kirk asks if they have a backup, and they don't. And neither does the ship. I mean, that kind of makes more sense. Uh, but Spock was like, well, we wouldn't have anything that antiquated. Yeah, but it's like you need a water pump. That's what it is, right? Yeah. It's like, well, we could use our super cool water pump. It'll actually pump uh, 10 times as much water as necessary at one third the energy. But yeah, that'll keep it cool. Real cool. But my thought is, is like, if it is so antiquated, isn't that all the more reason you need to have a backup of it? Yeah. I mean, come on, people. What's going on here? And then, you know, like, uh, Chris, and, like, I can't believe you don't, you don't know. Right? Go you could have gone, we lost the backup a week ago to the monster. Yes, exactly. You'd be like, whoa, well. <laughs> well, that makes more sense. Yeah. And then what's great is that, you know, Kirk's like, upset because they don't have a backup and he <laughs> and then the uh, Vandenberg says well we've never had a problem before and I'm like that is all the more reason buddy that is all the more reason you should be like on eBay trying to find a new water pump for this old thing this old reactor anyway Kirk says these well are the, these are the problems that you run into when you write a script in four days on speed yes exactly <laughs> that's so true well, that's the funny thing, because that's not the only thing I noticed in this episode, but <laughs> again, we will get there. So then Kirk, you know, gives the gives the dire, well, it looks like uh, we don't have much of a choice. It's either death by asphyxiation or death by radiation. I love right, that. Well, hey. <laughs> okay, great. As we go to commercial, by the way, we're going to leave it on that. We're going to leave it on that note. Back What's to that? it. What they've done, so, I mean, so far they've been discussing the monster as if it's animalistic, right? Right. And at right, this right. point, he presents this dilemma that they've been put into. 
as if by accident, right? As <laughs> if like a dog knocking over the trash can. Oh, and he spilled out something that's either going to asphyxiate us or irradiate us. <laughs> yep, exactly. <laughs> we got to clean it up right now. But that dilemma suggests it's foreshadowing that, in fact, the monster is not a mere animal, but an intelligence. Well, clearly, I knew to take out the cooling pump. Um, and that that cooling pump was like the key to the to driving the humans off the planet. Yeah, well, the reactor itself. Well, you know, so in an original uh, version of the script, he actually took one of the cooling rods out of the thing. But you know, uh, their research department was like, "Well, then you'd blow up the planet. Like that wouldn't help anybody, and it's certainly not going to help the poor, you know, floor horde to keep his, uh, you know." Is, is 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 people alive because he's not they're gonna all blow up thanks to this reactor so that's why they changed it and made it a cooling pump so back to it from commercial scott is telling us that uh they don't have anything that could fit that cooling pump i haven't seen anything like that in 20 years he says uh but scott decides uh he can probably rig up something you know yeah this is like we find a 57 chevy uh -huh. right the engine's blown, or maybe the carburetor's cracked, and you've got all these engineers and scientists, and, and no one's like, you know, all we've got are, like, 2017 Volkswagen engines. We have no way to make this car go, because we can't yeah. fix the you know, 1957 Chevy. Oh, well, no one's like, well, with all these engineers, you can't, like, pull out this engine, put that engine in, and, like, figure out a way to make it work. Nope, sorry. No matter how many engineers we got, that can't be done. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Whatever you say, guys. If only we so, had a uh, printer. <laughs> a 3D printer. Yeah, that could go. probably make us one that we could at least tide us over until. Uh, then, story-wise, they uh, give it to us all again. What's at stake? 12 planets need our help. Reactors are closing. People are going crazy. Uh, they need this pitney rock or whatever it's called um <laughs> to which vandenberg necessarium exactly flablotna <laughs> um but vandenberg comes back with i only care about my that my people are dying here kirk or, or maybe it's mcguffinite <laughs> <laughs> mcguffinite yes 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 so uh spock decides that he might have the answer uh what if life here is based on silicone. So again, we got the uh, DeForest Group. I don't think we've talked about them before, but the DeForest Group is a uh, is basically their research committee. They're the ones who tell us like if their science is like accurate or if their science is like right. They basically say that like silicon life isn't impossible. Like there are a lot of studies in it. Uh, it has uh, to be sustained. It would have to develop under conditions of extreme heat perhaps environments comparable to uh, the planet Mercury, it could not possibly exist in an oxygen atmosphere. But again, having written this in four days, there was no way he could go back and like rewrite the episode. So hence, these next few lines here between Kirk and uh, McCoy and Nimoy, where he's like, look, it's only a hypothesis. I don't know really what's going on. Uh, uh, it's, the only, it's the only opportunity we have. It's possible that this isn't going to work, but... So that's what this whole scene was written for, is just so that he could help keep the science at least, you know, a little bit on the nose. And, you know, 
the idea of silicon isn't i mean so you know mccoy responds that's crazy it's impossible well, it's impossible than, it's impossible in the oxygen atmosphere that's the impossible right. part of it but they brought the oxygen atmosphere yeah i mean the, the planet is apparently unlivable without this reactor you know yes, creating for humans for yeah yeah so yeah, because that's actually what then you know Spock goes on to say. Well, maybe he can survive in an oxygen atmosphere for a few minutes. He's basically holding his breath, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Did he kill someone? He's back to, to toxicity. So it's funny because so I I I, I don't know. I don't want to make these assumptions based on what I do know. Obviously, we know that you know Shatner lost his father in this episode, and we don't know. I don't know personally what scenes were shot before and what shot what scenes were shot afterwards. No, I think he but, does a great job. I mean, this. Oh yeah. No sense that like his acting is off kilter. In no, fact, exactly. I, I think it's one of the best Captain Kirk episodes. Uh huh. In the sense that it, it presents the captain as decision maker. He's given yeah. this classic dilemma. In which he has, the, the, so up until now, and and for a few more minutes, the miners are going to be like putting all this pressure, right? This is necessarium. Twelve planets need it. All my miners are, you know, at risk. So many men have died so far. You must kill the monster. And Kirk is on board with that. Like, well, we've been brought in to solve the problem. The problem apparently means killing the monster. I'm going to do my job. Yeah. And then. Then Spock begins to raise these issues. Maybe this isn't what we think it is. Maybe there's more here than meets the eye. Maybe this is life. Maybe it's worth, you know, thinking about or exploring or, um, and you know, for a while, Kirk is no, no, we got a, we got a mission. You know, but when confronted by it, Kirk is flexible. He's not dogmatic. He's yeah. he's he's gotten this input. And he's able to, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't really flip positions. He gets more information, though. Right. I mean, he, he doesn't completely adopt Spock's position, right? True. But he, he does realize that the Spock position has, has enough of the truth here that we're gonna, we are going to switch to preserve the Horta rather than kill the Horta. Yeah. And so, I mean, he's got a lot of stuff to work with here, and I think he does a great job. Yeah. Well, since uh, and since we're talking about this specific subject of like, you, uh, one of the things that Cushman uh, brings up in his book is the idea of you know this is so. First of all, this is totally flips the normal, totally flips the normal um, idea of what we do in these episodes, right? Part of the reason they're calling it a monster. The first, you know, part of this episode is because, you know, they're really trying to set up like, okay, it's a scary creature and blah, 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 only to have that flipped then at the end by saying, no, we need to help this creature. We need to protect it. We can live by side by side for it. You know, everything that happens at the end of this episode. So Cushman then goes on to ask the question like, well, what would happen? So Gene Kuhn basically in this episode has said, this is what the mission of these people is, right? So we've now had a couple of episodes in a row where Kuhn is sort of like laid out exactly what the the mission of the enterprise is about. You know, we're here to help people. We're here to, you know, solve the problems. We're here to, you know, make everybody better and, you know, all the Roddenberry things. And, and, and so, 
as what? I think I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of the series, it's all in the yeah. mission statement at the beginning of the episode. What are we yes. here to do? Seek out new life. Here it is. Yeah. Here it is, new life. Stuff we didn't know before. Silicone in, at that. But the question he then begs, the author then begs, is, you know, how different would the man trap have been? Because it seems like that whole episode, it's like, we got to kill it. You know, it's the last of its kind, like the Horda. Like, isn't it interesting how, like, now the coon is on board, how, how it's changed, how, you know, Kirk even reacts to creatures that are the last of its kind or any of those things. So I thought that was a really interesting point because... yeah. I mean, so he's not really out to save the man, you know, the, the, the creature in the man trap at the end. But part of the problem is that it continues to be aggressively predatory. That's right? true. In a way that the Horda seems to be much more defensive, just wants to protect its young and is wounded. Whereas the, the salt monster continues killing crew members going after salt. And but, you know, they could just throw them on like some silicone blaze or not silicone, but like yeah. some salt based planet, you know, throw them on crate or whatever at the end of the last Jedi. Right. Yeah. The whole top layer is salt. And she could eat her, eat her the rest of her life. And it's, it's not like delivering salt would be some kind of a problem in terms of long term, you know, yeah. existence. Yeah. But that creature never engages in dialogue even though it seems to be capable of all the things you think necessary to communicate it engages in speech it can adopt a friendly looking you know persona and say listen you know here's my situation i just need salt and if you just guys you know just give me some salt i'd be cool with whatever else you guys are doing listen the doctor and i have gotten along you know fine as long as i got the salt i'm cool like yeah. if i don't get the salt i get you know i get a little get a little crazy Gotta admit. Fair. Whereas, whereas here, the Horta, at first you think, well, how would they communicate with it? It's impossible, right? Yeah. It's got it's no mouth. Talk. Right. And then they kind of figure out a way to communicate with it and engage in some basic and even Spock says it's you know it's difficult and so forth. And he he I think you know he does a great job, uh Nimoy, in doing this voice. So you can yeah. tell when he's kind of in Horta mode. Yeah. Because he's not speaking as himself. He's hard to communicate with. At one time, um, Kirk has to be like, you know, shake it off, break out of it, you know. Yep. And so there's this sense that communication with this thing is hard. It's not, it's not like he adopts a pleasing form and then carries on a conversation. Talks about your past and. Hey, you know, remember that time you really were like Jones for the hot dogs? I remember back, you know, on, on, uh, <laughs> you know, Claygon Three. <laughs> well, you know, I, I really, I went Jones for the salt. I got to admit. Instead, you know, <laughs> the salt monster doesn't communicate. Right. And the horde does. So. Uh. So anyway, all of that to say. Where I was going with all of that was I think that Shatner is at his most like Shatner-esque in this episode, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. He's uh it feels a lot like his Wrath of Khan persona. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a little more like lighthearted with things, you know. Um it's great. But I so I wrote this. <laughs> speaking of Shatner and his most Shatner, I wrote this exactly how he said this line, which was uh which is in this scene that we were just talking about. He goes, how about this 
a creature who lives deep below us in the rocks. It. Oh, no. Oh, it would have to have some form of iron plating. You know what I mean? It was like, that's exactly how he's not quite the inflections, but that's, you know, pretty much exactly how he says it. You know what I mean? I was just like, that is amazing. And he's so anyway, I have more more examples of like awesome, like lighthearted, lighthearted uh, Kirk in this episode. But again, I don't know if some of that was maybe because, you know, he was like trying to tell everybody, hey, I'm cool. I can do my job. You know, let's not like everybody be falling all over me and, uh, you know, whatever else. Because of my dad. So anyway, we uh, we find out that there are two types of phasers. This is a new thing we've never heard about before. We got phaser one, which is what uh, everybody usually carries around. But then there's also phaser two. And perhaps phaser two is the answer. Spock can modify these phasers to go up against silicone. Kirk asks Spock to speculate, uh, but uh, he refuses to give McCoy anything else to scoff at and chooses to contemplate it further because he's already kind of gone off the deep edge already, he feels like, with his uh, silicone monster idea. He checks in on Scotty, who's, as always, doing my best. You know, what, uh, what you get, like, is a, a missed opportunity again because... We're writing the scripts, you know, at 3 a.m., you know, on, uh, on, amphetamines. on the eyeball there. So yeah. <laughs> um, McCoy objects to the, you know, the possibility of silicon life, right? Right. And would he, you know, instead of just engaging in contradiction, which is the lowest form of argument, as I recall John Cleese telling us. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> Instead, he could have offered some like medical reasons, right? Right. You know the the necessity of this and the necessity of that, and he he would have only had to have offered two or three, and you go, well, he's a doctor; he knows what he's talking about. Yeah. And it, you know, it would have been the kind of thing where Spock's like, uh, you know, can't refute your logic, doctor. Exactly. And, and then that, <laughs> you know, you get these opportunities where McCoy gets to say, "Never, never thought I would have lived to hear it." <laughs> Like I said, Kirk's down there talking to Scott at the reactor. And uh, again, another awesome like Shatner Kirkism where he's like, uh, he tells uh, Scott, be kind to her, tender love and care, kisses, flatter if you have to, but keep this thing running. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Kirk then briefs the men, telling them to start at level 24 and work their way up. <laughs> Apparently, Kirk's men aren't too smart either because we have uh, them split up. Now one of them is on their own again. And boom! He bites the dust. And he, too, is too scared to fire his weapon. I don't know what's going on with all these people, too. This is a crew member, a security guard. He should know, like, that should be his first instinct. Fire first, yeah. ask questions later. Exactly. And so, you know, you could have had the situations where, as they mention later, there's nothing more dangerous than a wounded animal. Yeah. And as I recall, the... Uh, was it the ranger manual or the survival manual? It, it argued not to shoot at bears. It only makes them angry. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and that could have Good been point. the situation. So he does shoot, but he doesn't. his shot isn't long enough, right? Nope. Or maybe it's, uh, it's uh, he's shooting too many shots and some of them are wild, but he only makes the Horda angry and it attacks. 
you also could have gotten some nice scenes with some tension and drama if you had two guys who see it, shoot at it, but it disappears. And now mm -hmm. they're hearing it. Oh, it's over here. No, it's over there. No, I hear something over there. Is it yeah. in the walls? It's 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 every it's surrounding us. Where you know? Yep. But where is it? Oh no! And like, was it over here? Well, I think it's over there because they talk about how fast the thing moves, right? Right. And then suddenly, you know, one of them gets you know attacked without the other guy, and he shoots at it, but it disappears into the cave. And he approaches, but there's steam, and he looks, and he right. can't see anything, and it's like, well, that would have been cool, and it wouldn't have taken yep. that long. Whereas, whereas one guy by himself, you're kind of like, do these people never learn? And you know, I understand there's a certain amount of dr dramatic necessity. We got to show that the thing is dangerous. It's got to kill a man. But do we got to leave a guy standing by himself while some giant comes and throws him into a pit? Yeah, exactly. Or the horde attacks out of nowhere, you know? Well, even funnier, you know, eh. buddy system. Buddy system, exactly. So, uh, Kirk and Spock uh, find the uh, find the crewman burned into the ground, and quickly Spock finds the hole in the wall. No machine could have made this tunnel. So it's only now where they're figuring out that oh, this thing moves through walls. Okay, that explains its speed. So you know maybe it's not super fast, but if it can cut through walls, then hey, it doesn't even matter there. And then the Horta slithers out of another hole. So we may have talked about this before, but hey, let's talk about it one more time. By today's standards, obviously these effects are not that scary, right? The big blobby horda thing, you know. Right. Uh, I, you know, I always hear about like in the '60s that kids would be scared of Doctor Who, right? They, they right. jump behind the couch because they were too scared of Daleks. And uh, and you know, it's funny because I don't know if this is I just grew up with like. Star Wars being the first movie. And so not only were the special effects, you know, cause I was four, right? So not only were like the special effects amazing, but I also knew because there was so much behind the scenes making of stuff for Star Wars, right? If you recall, even back in 77, hosted by Joseph Conrad, um, that like, you know, I even understood that it's like, that's a rubber thing, right? It's not really a monster, so it doesn't scare me. So, what is cool is, is about seeing that Horda slither out of the tunnel was, is that the rest actually a little bit something kind of gross about it, something a little like blah, blah, blah. So I can just imagine that kids in the 60s seeing that for the first time that uh, they might be covering their eyes or, you know, jumping under the carpet. good table. job, you know, in the Hitchcock way, they didn't show the monster till late. Yep. There was an awful lot of, ah, and then... Mm -hmm. The camera gets blurry up in front, and you're like, well, something's mm -hmm. going on, but I can't quite tell. And then, oh, he burned to a crisp. Right, exactly. You're like, what is that thing? We can't see it. So uh, they both fire at it, and it retreats down another tumble, or another tunnel. Tumble? Uh, tumble? I don't know what I'm talking about. That's what it does. Yes, it tumbled, it tumbled down the tunnel, yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it was hurt. It lost part of its body. Another great, you know, Kirk moment here, uh, Shatner Kirk moment. They're looking down the tunnel, and then one of the crew members runs up and goes, oh, oh my gosh, did you see it, sir? And Kirk is like, yeah, we saw it. You know what I mean? Just the <laughs> yeah. way he said it was awesome. I was like, I love it. So good. Did you yeah. get a shot at it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, uh, so anyway, so then they pick this thing up off the floor. And again, this is just, I know it's the 60s and being way too picky, but there's like no weight to this thing that they're picking right. up, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. And you can even hear the like the squeaky part of the foam mm -hmm. when they pick it up. So it's just like, <laughs> yeah, you're just like, yeah. yeah, whatever. You know, I was attacked by aliens just the other day, and I got a piece of it right here. <laughs> 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 Dumb. Yeah, there's no like. Not only is it like just a piece of foam, but it's not even a gooey piece of foam, right? Right. You know, it's it's not dripping. It's not bloody. There's no oh. No. <laughs> but even if it's supposed to be rock, right, or whatever it's supposed to be, it doesn't look like it has any heft to it at all. It looks like they could literally like you know, just bat it in the air with their hand or something. It's a pumice creature. It's made entirely out of that light volcanic rock. The whole thing. Oh, that could, maybe. That whole monster's um, like 10 pounds. You, you just kick it back down the tunnel. It's going to go. <laughs> right, exactly. So they know they've wounded it now. And then Kirk uh, tells this man, uh, remember now, be careful, because there's nothing more dangerous than a wounded animal. Dun, dun, dun. There's your uh, Everyone bear. Everyone go their own way. <laughs> yes, exactly. There's your bear reference right there, yeah. That's right. Nothing worse than a wounded bear. Commercial. Back to it. Kirk reiterates to his men that the creature is wounded. Oh, all right. Don't forget. We got to let everybody know. Spock now tells Kirk that uh, he only has one one life reading, uh, one life reading on the creature. But with all these tunnels, it's clear that there must have been once millions of creatures. If it's indeed the last of their crime, it, uh, the last of their kind, it would be a crime against science. Yeah, I like this crimes the against science. It's not genocide. It's not a crime against right. life or against, you know, no. the autonomy of beings. No, it's a crime against science because then we right. won't get to study it. Uh, Kirk decides that the creature must die, and Spock, too, says that he sees no alternative. Kirk's back in front of the troops, rallying them, them again. Spock then mentions at the end, and uh, make sure that we, we uh, capture it. But Kirk belays that order. He says, no, we are going to shoot to kill. After his team leaves, Kirk says, uh, that's right. <laughs> There's three. Uh, Kirk, says, uh, Kirk says, I gave no such order. Spock tries to talk Kirk into, uh, uh, you know, talk Science. him out of uh, killing the creature. Exactly. Science. But Kirk uh, then instead uh, stops him and decides to send him down to help Scotty. Kirk tells him that, uh, hey, you know, with the both of us together, the creature attacking us could be bad. I need to keep one of us safe because, you know, we're the command crew. You're my second in command. Spock decides to tell him the odds of what it would be. And it was over 2,000 to one that they which would is, actually be probably both die. separated. Right. But as, as they're working as a team, those odds are probably more like three and one. <laughs> right. Kirk then allows him to stay. All right, fine. We'll work together on this. Just make sure you follow my instructions. Uh, Scott then calls them and says, hey, the, the pump is kaput. We got to, uh, we got to uh, get out of here. Kirk calls for an immediate evac of the miners. But Vandenberg, who's with Scott, tells, uh, tells him that some of his men will help hunt the creature down and use clubs if we have to. They've been using phasers all along it hasn't done anything to the creature and here now they're like oh no we can use clubs it'll be fine it's gonna be great 
Don't worry. They'll, they'll well, now work. we know that it's made of foam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We heard you pick it up. Uh, if only we knew it was phaser-resistant foam, so we would have been using clubs long ago. <laughs> exactly. Spock suddenly gets the feeling they are being watched, which is funny because there's something that's actually uh, cut out of this episode. It was a really cool part. Did I skip that part? Maybe I did. Maybe I did. But uh, there was a scene that was cut. You actually knew that the Horda was watching them and also understood that Kirk was like in charge because he was the one barking orders, pointing to people where to go and, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, that was the reason that it caused the collapse to happen when Kirk was by himself was because it knew that it knew that Kirk was in charge and figured it might be the only way. Kirk is like to, a uh, coolant pump. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> it would have been cool to have like a moment where you're kind of, you know, where he gets up to the wall and makes the wall really thin and he maybe there's he pokes a little piece through and you just kind of see into the room. But you can't understand the... Yes. <laughs> Whatever that was. Anyway... <laughs> Well, it's like the Horda is listening. You're you're watching through the Horda's view. Oh yes, yes, but he can't understand what the what yeah. the what we're saying. I yeah. thought that was the Horda talking. I was <laughs> like, why even have him talk? Now the humans are talking. He can't understand. So a little bit later, Kirk sends the men with the clubs to join the Enterprise crew. Enterprise crew. So now there's a, a pairing of one miner with one uh, Enterprise crew member. They get to a junction. There are two tunnels. What should we do? Kirk says, well, there's two tunnels, two of us. Uh, tension mounts as the two of them make their way down the tunnels. They see more and more of those silicone balls, nodules. The creature, uh, the creature then collapses the roof on Kirk. For a minute, Spock is worried that something has happened to Kirk. But Kirk says, no, 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 I'm fine. But then the creature comes out and heads towards Kirk as we go to commercials. Back to it. Kirk holds up his weapon, but the creature does not attack. Spock calls in to tell him that the uh, tricorder has realized that the creature is near. Oh, uh, Kirk assures him that he is right. In fact, it's right in front of me. Now here, Spock tells him to kill it. And Kirk says, uh, but I thought you shouldn't. I thought you said you didn't want me to kill it. I thought you wanted me to keep it around. No, your life is in danger, Jim. He says he calls him Jim there. Yeah, so Spock is clearly reacting out of friendship. Yes, exactly. You he know, calls him he calls him Jim a lot in this episode. If it puts the miners' lives at risk, let's keep the creature alive to study it. But if Jim's <laughs> life is at risk, by all means kill the thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um <clears throat> Spock makes his way towards uh, Kirk. I mean, yeah, we, we're, we're kind of making light of that. But Kirk has done the same thing many times when it's, a, when it's merely a crewman, right? Yeah. He's like, oh, colonists have died. That's very sad. Like, you know, Ensign Smith is dead? Oh, totally changed the plan. We're going to put the planet, you know? <laughs> yep. Totally true. Totally true. Kirk tries to communicate. 
even think back to like the 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 source material, Captain Cook in the Pacific or Horatio Hornblower, and that's the kind of stuff that did happen in the Pacific, right? Is that you know some the British crew gets off and it's like, oh look, it's the natives, ha ha ha. Oh, you violent and taboo, we must kill Ensign Smith now, club. Whoa! <laughs> Bring up the muskets, give me some cannon. <laughs> that's right. Let's take these uh, natives you out. Gotta, gotta show the natives who's boss here. You don't uh, you don't take out an ensign because some taboo was violent. That's not how it works. <laughs> so uh, Kirk tries to communicate with it, but obviously he can't. But it does turn around so we can see where it's hurt. Spock then enters and uh, raises its gun at him, but Kirk tells him to back off. No, no, no. Kirk references the silicone balls. Thousands of them. Spock then thinks for a minute and says, fascinating. And then you see Shatner do a double take. He's like, "What? what's fascinating? Spock suggests that he does a mind melt, and he does so without touching it. But all he gets is pain, pain. So pain. Spock finds that. Then the creature uh, uses its corrosive acid on a rock and says, no, kill, I. What does that mean, says Kirk? Does it mean we shouldn't kill him or it's not going to kill us? We also find out that it's called a Horta. Kirk falls, calls uh, for McCoy to uh, help the creature. Spock attempts to reestablish contact with the creature. Uh, but this time he says, I'm going to have to touch it to get to the, uh, to get to the, deep, the depths of it. Meanwhile, the, we find out that our crew is holding the miners back. Uh, he says, uh, tell, them to, uh, tell them to stay back. But when McCoy gets down, make sure you let him through. The mind meld begins. Uh, the Horda is calling the, the, the people murders, monsters. McCoy shows up and Kirk tells him to help the Horda. You have this beautiful reversal, right? You know, you see things from the, the Horda's point of view. Right. It's Monster great. again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, the term monster being, you know, spit yeah, back at us, basically. It. Yeah. Yep. McCoy says, how do you want me to help him? I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. <laughs> so uh, then there's this, like, this, the, the, the mind meld goes on for quite a long time. And McCoy's kind of incredulous when he first sees it. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, there's a scene in Discovery where Ash slash Voke is, you know, gambling with the Klingons and, you know, I think there's, you know, some, you know, maybe there's some like drug use going on. He's like totally living the the uh, Orion Klingon decadent lifestyle, and like uh, Michael Burns, like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah, this is crazy, right? And that's the kind of thing that McCoy comes in and like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> this is weird. Mm-hmm. So feel it. <laughs> what? <laughs> So uh, the Hordum tells them uh, where the cooling pump is because they finally made a good contact between the two of them. It's in the Room of Tomorrow and tells Kirk where it is. So Kirk enters the Room of Tomorrow and finds many of the silicone nodules on the floor, broken, open, like, say, like eggshells. The creature talks of dying. McCoy uh, calls aboard and tells them to send something down. Kirk comes back to the unit with the eggs and shows and shows Spock. The Horda's kids were being uh, killed by the miners. 
And at this point, the miners overthrow the security guards and bum rush into the room. Two of them raise their favors, but as phasers, but as they do, Kirk yells, first person to fire is a dead man. Vandenberg yells back, that thing killed 50 of my men. Oh, well, you've killed thousands of our children. Spock goes on to tell us that the Horda lives, uh, lives and every 50,000 years until one is left to watch over the eggs and the millions will hatch again. She only fought back as any mother would, says Kirk. Kirk tells them that they can live in peace with the Horda. Hey, they move through rock like we move through air. It's their nourishment. Their nourishment. They're the best miners around. And I think you'll find yourself a little more profitable. At which point Vandenberg's like, ah, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe that'll be good for us. Spock announces, however, the Horta may die. And then, out of nowhere, with clay-covered hands, Bones speaks up. Ah, he won't die. I think I've saved him. I'm beginning to think I can, I can cure a rainy day. Like, what a bizarre metaphor is that? <laughs> I don't know, but day. I love it. I can cure a rainy day. Okay. <laughs> we find out that he's uh, fixed her up with some concrete. Uh, that they have on board for uh, temporary housing. Back on the Enterprise, uh, I Kirk love calls he's down. For it too. It's like, uh, yeah, I need to, you know, that box of X-27. Don't ask what I wanted for, just send it to me. <laughs> but you can exactly. imagine being the guy on the ship. Uh, the doctor is asking for like a pallet <laughs> of concrete. Like, what? <laughs> what is he doing? The doctor wants it like concrete? <laughs> Right? It's crazy. What is he like going on some kind of crazy bone setting, you know? <laughs> Apparently. Uh, back on the Enterprise, they get a call from Vandenberg. Uh, he says that they've already found vast reserves of gold, platinum, and many other earths, he says. Uh, boy, those miners are really good once you get them, once you get past how ugly they are. Spock says, uh, that's funny because the mother horde has said to me that our appearance is revolting. But she said she could get used to it. McCoy says, oh, well, she didn't happen to make any comments about those ears of yours, did she? <laughs> Spock says, I did get the impression that she thought that, that they were the most attractive human characteristic of all. I didn't have to tell her, have the heart to tell her that I, Kirk says, she really liked those ears, did she? <laughs> Spock says, the Horda is a remarkably sensitive and intelligent creature with impeccable taste. Impeccable Kirk. taste. Kirk says, because she approved of you, Spock. <laughs> really, Captain, my modesty, Kirk interrupting, does not merit close examination, I'm sure. <laughs> Love it. And that's how that episode ends with the uh, crew of the Enterprise on their way again. Back to the money money situation here with extensive planet sets being required and delays due to Shatner's absence. Devil ran over Star Trek's mandated six-day shooting schedule and the maximum budget of $185,000 per episode. This episode cost $192,800. The first season deficit now growing again. Up to $83,000. So uh, a lot of people really like this episode. Uh, this is one of William Shatner's favorite. He calls it a terrific story. Uh, exciting, thought-provoking, and intelligent. 
James Doohan also picked this as a fav favorite. Leonard Nimoy, too, thinks it's one of his favorites, saying uh, called it powerful as it dealt with racism and intercultural conflict. Yeah, the, a fear of something that we go it ahead. It doesn't gloss over it. So, you know, we get some episodes like the one with the half black, half, half white people who are fighting with the half black, half white people. <laughs> yes. No, no, he's totally a, a you know ridiculous. Look, he's 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 black on the left hand. <laughs> no, yep. no, no, he's ridiculous. Black on the right hand. And uh, where there, it's kind of you know dialed up to eleven. It's a little bit over the top. We're gonna yep. That point, it rises, you know, more to the level of of uh, we're gonna hit you over the head with it. Yep. But here, the, these problems are real and they're integral to the story because encountering truly alien life really would be difficult. Yeah. So the fact that they spend a long time going, it's a monster. You know, we, you just got to kill it. And then realizing only in the, in the third act, oh, wait a minute. It's a mother. It's protecting its young. I understand that. Can we communicate with it? Well, with some difficulty. Do we understand what it means? Not even what it writes. Do we understand what it means? Because we're like, it's grammar's weird. Yeah. It's like talking to Yoda. <laughs> and so those are like, those are, you know, they feel real, authentic, you know, that we would have these difficulties in understanding and communicating with alien life. Yeah. Uh, and also, finally, Entertainment Weekly chose this as uh, number six in their top ten picks from the original series. Cinefastique also rated it in their top ten list as well. So there you go, another episode down. Now, it's funny. <clears throat> I was telling uh, Jamie this, my wife, after uh, after I watched the episode last night, that, you know, this is obviously a very classic episode. You know, this is one that everybody talks about. It's on a lot of people's top 10 uh, favorites. Yep. Uh, it's, it's an important episode because it gives us, the, you know, one of the clear ideas like we've talked about of, uh, you know, finding out what the creature wants as opposed to just killing it without, you know, without a yeah. second thought or glance. It's not shoot first, ask questions later. It's ask questions and then decide if we need to shoot. Yeah, which is why, you know, a lot of the characterizations that, that Captain, Cook is, is, Captain Kirk is shoot to kill, shoot to kill, is, yeah. is uh, it's either a parody or it reflects the kind of, this is our starting presumption, right? We're here to protect the miners. The miners have been here for 50 years. Suddenly they've encountered something dangerous. We need to protect them. Yes. Lots of people are depending on this. This is necessarium. It's got to be, you know. 12 planets. That's right. And then, and then, you know, it's only when he's really confronted with the monster, he's like, well, I'm ditching that plan. Yeah. I'm going with something else. Which, in a sense, is the real Captain Kirk. Which I'm sorry, which is what you cut out. That's the real Captain Kirk. Yeah. You know, up until then he was he was going with the flow, right? He had orders to protect this necessary mineral. The miners were clearly, yeah, you gotta kill it. It's a real problem. Yep. And he's like, Every, everyone seems to want the thing dead. Okay, I can do that. Yeah. I can kill a monster. <laughs> but with all of that said, um, it was a pretty wacky episode. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All those things that we pointed out. I, I mean, again, it was written in four days or whatever on amphetamine. Yeah. So, you know, take, <laughs> take it with it what you will. But, the, you know, I just, as I kept watching it, I was just like, there's some logic missing here. That doesn't yeah. quite work. 
you know, why aren't we going out in, in, in groups of two or three to make sure that everybody's protected? Right, you know, right. like there's just so many whole weird plot holes in it that I was just like, ah, is this really like supposed to be the like classic episode? And again, I understand on the bigger ideas that yeah. yes, it is. But uh, certainly as when it comes to like, do we want every episode like this? I think the answer is probably no. <laughs> yeah, there's, there is a certain rewatchability problem in terms of like, you know, you, don't, you probably don't want to watch this episode once a year. Yes. Yes. It, uh, yeah, you know, so like one of the things that I've been talking about that I think would be great, like since the 80s, is computer generated characters, right? Yeah. It, it saddens me that the moment at which computer generated characters seem likely, people are like, oh, you, you can't make episode nine with CGI Princess Leia. That would be wrong. I'm like, no, that's exactly what we want from now and forevermore. Right, you know, to be able to go back and and to take this episode and fix some of the plot holes, you know, you turn around, and you make a what is it, a fifty-two minute episode, right? You know, say so you make a hundred and six minute episode, in which, you know, you you solve these problems, right? You include the scenes where you've got the two guys, but the the thing seems to be everywhere. It's over here. No, it's over there. We shoot yeah. it, but it. it, it it disappears into the, into the into the wall. How does that, you know, you run up to look at it. No, no, it's over here. Yep. Yeah, stuff like that. You have, you know, some of the like reference. You know, it's it's the only uh, the only coolant. We've never needed another coolant. Or, well, he got the last one last week. We're down yep. to our last coolant. It you know makes more sense. It gives you the sense of urgency. Like, well, we're on our last leg. In the same way that in the mud episode. You know they're they're burning through their uh, their lithium crystals. <laughs> yes. When they're when they're trying to protect mud ship, you know, this, you know it's not like well we only need the one lithium crystal. Instead they're like there goes the lithium crystal, there goes the lithium. Are we sure we want to protect this ship? No, no, we got to protect it. He's in danger. We got to save yep. him. And you know you add some of those just you know a second thought, some fridge logic. You go back and think about it one more time, and you're like yeah. You can fix some of this stuff easily. That makes that make a, a cool episode, and and we got to make Khan a, a three episode arc. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I know you you are continually hopeful for the uh, for some more uh, original Sean Connery uh, James Bond. James Bond, movie, that's right. So. Exactly. Imagine, well, uh, that's oh, imagine some nineteen sixty five William Shatner. Some 1964 right. William Shatner. You know, what was it like? Yeah. How about, how, can you, you imagine it... the episode where Pike is like, all right, he's your ship, moving on to my well, new command. And like Shatner's new, and, you know, Spock's the old favorite of the outgoing captain, and like, what's our relationship going to be? You know? Yep. Well, and, and that would course, be like totally cool for that next season of Discovery, you know, to have the original exactly. Pike come in and. And be all CGI. That would be cool. That's that not what they're going to do, but that would be cool. Well, yeah, they could get a new actor because it's all, you know, you got a new Sarek, you got. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the same thing like with doing the new like Han Solo movie, you know, now you're going to have your young Han Solo, you know, now you just need to start getting your young Princess Leia, your young, you know, your new young Luke, and you're going to be, you're going to be set. That's right. Although we well, got to watch out that, that Lucas doesn't give us, you know, 20 minutes of womp rat shooting. 
<laughs> That's if he was doing that well. Because there's not much else you could do with a young uh, Luke Skywalker movie. Right. You know what I mean? That's all it would be is him shooting womp rats in his T-16 back home. And, and going to Tashi Station. <laughs> yeah, picking up those power converters. <laughs> Got him. All right, well, that is all I got for this episode. Anything else you got for uh, yep. this episode? Anything we haven't hit? Yeah, I know. Kind of hit good. everything. I had, a, I had a lot of notes in this one. It was crazy. Perfect. All right. Well, hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. As always, we are on the YouTubes. We are on the iTunes. We are on the SoundCloud. Uh, we have our own website that will announce whenever we're releasing a new episode. You can always download it there, too. Oh, look at all these ways we're making it easier for you to watch and listen to this. Aren't we the best? Uh, that's all I got for this week. Like I said, next week we got Aaron to Mercy. Dun, dun, dun. Another one which I don't necessarily remember a lot about, but definitely re remember some of the people who are in it. So we'll see how I feel about this. I know that there are some Klingons involved, I think, too, at least in some way. That's it. Hey, I'm Matt saying goodbye, and as always, say goodbye from Houston. Ken. Live long and prosper. There we go. Perfect. And we'll talk to you all next week.